Are you ready to turn your best ideas into a thriving online business? Introducing Shopify, your no-excuses business partner. You might not realize, but our podcast, More Than Mammies, it's a business. And we started it, of course, to talk about maternity, not to become an e-commerce expert. So yeah, we needed some help selling our merch and getting our store up and running. Another sale. Shopify is a commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. No matter if you are a garage entrepreneur or a big business, Shopify is the only tool you need to start and grow your business without the struggle. With Shopify single dashboard, you can manage orders, shipping, and payments from anywhere, giving you the insights you need wherever you are. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash sonoro or lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash sonoro to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash sonoro. Hey there, everyone. I'm Sarah Weldon, CEO of Trufinco, a finance company dedicated to helping both budding and established small businesses. I'm thrilled to be hosting Business Perfect Formula, a podcast designed to demystify business funding, real estate investing, and business credit. My goal is to simplify the complexities of alternative lending, showing you that navigating the financial landscape can be straightforward and stress-free. Business Perfect Formula is available wherever you listen to podcasts. I could have not had the opportunities I've had if I had been over there. I would have not gotten to intern for Google or even have a job with them now. Yes, the world is on the move and we will see more of that. The economic powerhouse that migrants are, I think, has to be nourished. I'm deeply concerned over the policies of some national leaders are taking at the moment. I think this very xenophobic, chauvinistic view of society is going to damage the world in general. Welcome to the Global Goalscast, the podcast that explores if we can change the world. I'm Edith Lush. And I am Claudia Romo Edelman. We're happy to have you here. And this episode, we're going to look at migration. Why is it essential and how the backlash against migration is a direct threat to the global goals set by the United Nations. Right after this. In every episode, we will give you sticky facts and figures that you will want to share with your friends over coffee. All data is brought to you courtesy of SAS our official analytics and data visualization partner. And you can go to our website at globalgoalscast.org to find even more data, visualizations, and maps. We love you, SAS. Welcome back. On this episode, we're going to talk about an issue close to my heart and Claudia's, and that's migration. Mm -hmm. We're both migrants. We and our children have benefited enormously because we are able to move from country to country. From me to the U.S., to the Bahamas, back to the U.S., became an internal migrant moving from the West Coast to the East Coast, and now I live in the U.K. And Claudia, you went from Mexico to... Well, practically everywhere. Enough about us, but we're going to look at migration through a very special lens today. And that's not just the lens of the good migration has done for us and the millions of other individuals and families, or even the really familiar discussions of the desperate people fleeing the world's most horrific, troubled spots. No, we want to highlight how different the world would look like 12 years from now, depending on the decisions about whether we close off migration, we close the borders, or we build bridges, and whether we encourage a migration that is more orderly and systemic, or we just want to build walls. 
Migration is baked into the Sustainable Development Goals. Here's William Lacey Swing, the director of the International Organization for Migration, explaining the connection. 3.5% of the world's population are international migrants. That's the 244 million I mentioned. But these 3.5% of the world's population are producing 9% of global GDP. And that is 4% more than they would have produced if they stayed home. So uh, when people ask me, what's the relationship between migration and development, I say migrants are the ultimate agents of development. To show the power of migration in a few minutes, we're going to introduce you to Brenda, who we love because she's such an example about a typical story of a girl that crossed the Rio Grande from Mexico into the U.S. when she was nine and with nothing but her parents' dreams of a better future for her. So you will see how that arrival has benefited not only her, but also her family and both Mexico and the U.S. She is earning money, sending money home, etc. So we will talk to you about what could happen over the next 12 years if the next Brenda, some nine years old in Mexico today, it is stopped from repeating her journey by the backlash against migration. 12 years, of course, is the year 2030, and that's the year that the UN has set to achieve 17 global goals to end extreme poverty and encourage growth in ways that don't wreck the environment. Our job on this podcast is to hold those goals up to the light and ask what it's going to take to achieve them, highlight successes, and call out threats. Mm -hmm. It actually surprised me to see how many of the global goals were linked to migration. 13 out of 17 which leads me to think that we can't achieve the global goals without encouraging people to move around. And from where I live in the UK, the opposite seems to be happening. One of the largest threats of the global goals for me is the backlash against migration in major parts of the developed world, meaning the countries that used to receive these migrants. I spoke to Henry Cisneros, who's the former mayor of San Antonio, about this. At a time when the wage structure has changed, the number of jobs is reduced, the nature of industries has changed, populations are getting older, less secure economically and even in, in physical uh, capacities. To see newcomers with their different accents, with their strange names, with their uh, different complexions, with large families, it's no doubt going to create major tensions. Then I met Father Michael Cherney, the representative of the Holy See to the United Nations, when I was in Puerto Vallarta, actually during the Global Compact for Migration. First is to, to understand and even to sympathize with the feelings of, of fear, of insecurity, of bewilderment, of frustration that people do feel. In a certain sense, their reactions are not completely baseless or irrational. They really do feel threatened or they really do feel rendered insecure or disoriented. And so it's worth being sympathetic, first of all, rather than just condemnatory. So why are these internal political fights within certain countries a threat to the global goals? To answer that, we have to talk first with an expert or two about how migration works as an economic force. Then it would be so much easier to show how the whole ambition of the global goals could be derailed by political efforts to curtail migration. And I think that the best person I spoke to about is my new boss. Not just because she's your new boss. Not because she's my new boss. She's the smartest. And she's a representative of the Secretary General for Migration in 2018. She is in charge of making the Global Compact for Migration a reality. And this is Louise Harbour. 
They are today, as we speak in the world, about 257 million migrants. This is people who live, have moved and live for more than one year outside their country of birth or, or nationality. They are overwhelmingly migrant workers. They have a rate of employment higher than that of native population. 48% of migrants are women, and they're not all just a member of the family of a man. They are millions of uh, women who are migrant workers in their own rights. And the economics are mind-boggling. Migrants spend about 85% of their income in the host country, and the 15% that they send home today represents $600 billion a year, about 450 of that going to developing countries. That amount is three times the amount of official development aid that wealthier countries send to developing countries. So the economic powerhouse that migrants are, I think, has to be nourished and, and uh, we have to capitalize on that force. So now have a listen to William Lacey Swing doing a little more myth-busting. The mythology is that migrants uh, are coming to take our jobs when, in point of fact, migrants are the ultimate development agent. They're actually, in most cases, actually producing jobs in the SMEs. They come in and they end up themselves creating businesses and hiring people. So that's the big picture. But as a journalist, I always want to have the human example of what an economist says. So now let's introduce Brenda. She's a real migrant, just like us. She arrived in the U.S. age nine from Mexico. And here she is speaking about her parents. My mom was um, a secretary at Nissan in Mexico City. My mom only has a high school degree because she did have me very young. And my stepdad worked as a driver for the vice president of a company. He doesn't even have a high school degree. When they moved here, my mom was actually out of a job for about six months when they moved. She couldn't find anything. She didn't speak the language, of course. Um, but my stepdad worked in construction for a really, really long time. Um, after that, my mom started working in a dental lab where they make like fake teeth and stuff like that. She was helping out like minor tasks and then she worked at Wendy's. During the time they were both working at Wendy's and construction, they started dabbling with cameras and just like going to their friends like birthday parties and like taking a little video and editing a little bit and my mom teaching herself how to edit online. Um, so eventually they were able to go into a full-grown business for video photographers. So they were self-sufficient from the minute they got to the U.S. We're going to hear more about them shortly, but first of all, have a listen to my friend Philippe Legrain. He's a journalist, economist, and author, and he had this to say. Migration is also beneficial um, to the country to which uh, migrants move. The, the migrants come and do jobs that either locals don't want to do or are not able to do. Uh, they boost enterprise, I think creativity and innovation, widen the range of skills and ideas in the economy. And research for the IMF shows, for example, that an increase of the migrant share of the population by 1% tends to boost productivity and income levels of the existing population by 2%. Mm. So that's really, really significant. And if you think about it, you know, migration is a bit like starting a business. It's a risky venture uh, and it takes a hard work to make it mm. a payoff. Uh, and it's a natural way to get ahead if you arrive in a country with a few contacts or without an established career. Global Goals Cast has the most incredible network of partners that contribute with ideas, 
stories, and evidence points to bring you the most relevant, interesting, and compelling GoalsCast content. Special thanks to the International Office for Migration for this episode. We heard earlier about Brenda's parents and how they moved to America, worked multiple jobs before setting up their own business, those small and medium-sized enterprises that William Lacey Swing talked about. Do you remember the point that about remittances? Exactly. I absolutely love that aspect of the migration. Those are the new figures that get me going, the ones that I want to repeat to my friends. And here's what Brenda's parents do for their relatives in Mexico. They send back money to my grandmother. Um, she's getting older and not really able to hold a full-time job anymore and stuff like that. So she definitely needs money. My stepdad also has two other kids. Um, so he sends them money. Um, they both have kids as well. So it's basically the people that my parents send money to. My grandma and their, my stepdad's two kids. My grandma basically raised me along with my mom. So uh, for my grandma, it was really hard not only to lose her daughter, but also me. Um, my mom was also a huge, huge support to my grandmother growing up, just in terms of helping with the house and the bills and, and all that stuff. So it was a really big, big hit for, for my grandmother, I think mostly. And also, I mean, my, my step-siblings lost her dad, who's <laughs> here now. So um, they are better off economically than if he wasn't here, but they also don't have their dad. <laughs> My stepsister finished high school and she started going to culinary school, but she did not finish. And my stepbrother was going to college for electrical engineering, um, but dropped out once he had his kid. So he was almost there, he did not finish. So there's quite a contrast between Brenda and her stepsister. I started in the fourth grade. Now, I did not know any English whatsoever, um, so it was a really hard transition just um, trying to learn a new language and just uh, the shock of the cultural shock that you have to adjust to. Well, one is just being alone, right? Not having any, any friends, not any family besides your parents. I guess moving around was a big thing for us too. We didn't have a car, just moving around and not speaking the language. Um, and even the school bus for me was a completely new concept. I had never been on the school bus. And so the first time I got on it, I didn't really know what to expect or knew where to get off or anything. Um, so just little things like that. Come fifth grade, um, there was a couple of schools that came to talk to us about applying for their, for their schools, for middle school. But I decided to go with Ann Richards. My English was still lacking a little bit, so I mean, I got put in like special classes for my first year of sixth grade, which really helped me improve my English. And by the end, I was practically the same as my classmates, which was great. They also provided a lot of support for when I was in high school for summer camps and things. So I kind of discovered what programming was and knew what it was, but I'd never really done it. But I thought it was really interesting. And also, we didn't have a computer science class, and with the help of some teachers, we were able to make a class, um, which really helped me on later decide what I wanted to do in college. So, fast forward, I graduated from Ann Richards, and then I now attend the University of Texas at Austin, and I'm studying computer science. And I'm actually graduating in two weeks, so that's great. <laughs> The Ann Richards School, which we heard about in the first episode of the Global Goals Cast, helped inspire her to become a software engineer. 
And we know how rare those female computer programmers are. Which would they shouldn't be, but I, I, I have hopes that actually that's going to change in the next years. Her interest in programming led to a really exciting opportunity. And after a nerve-wracking process with things called host managers... That sounds like the arranged hoteliers. ...or something like that, it's now a reality. I got an interview with one of the projects for Google, and then I got told no. <laughs> I was like, great, yes. About two weeks later, I had another interview with another manager, and they also told me no. <laughs> but on the last day that I was supposed to be on host matching, my recruiter got back to me, he's like, okay, I have one more person that wants to interview you. This is the last chance you have. Um, I was like, okay. So I um, talked to that manager, and luckily he said yes. <laughs> And it was right, like, the day before my birthday, which was, like, awesome. I was so happy, and, and yeah, and that's, that's how I got my, my internship. And I went to California for three months and got an offer to come back as an intern again, and then intern in Boston, and I'm going to be working in Boston. As a software engineer, and I'm going to be working for their Google Photos team. And I asked Brenda how she felt about working in the same area as her parents. It was actually funny because um, when I was about 16 and I was already taking photographs of my parents and helping out with the business, um, I told my parents that I did not want to do that. I did not like it. So I was going to go to college and do something else. So when I got my offer letter for Google with like the photo team, I called my mom and I was like, it's just fate. I can't get away from it. Edie, I want to hear how Brenda originally got to America. Here's where the story takes a twist. My parents both tried coming here legally. They got rejected um, just because the way the immigration status said, my parents obviously didn't have any money, didn't have a job set up here, nothing. They were also trying to get me legally, but it will, my parents weren't able to do it. And this has to do with the fact that I do not know my biological father. Um, but his name's in the birth certificate. So in order for me to get a passport, as a child, you need both signatures from, a, from both parents. My stepdad actually came to the States first, um, and he saved a lot of money, so he paid um, the people that passes what we call coyotes a lot, a lot of money, so it wouldn't be a very long journey. Um, so basically, we um, went up to Tamaulipas in Nuevo León, so that state that borders Texas by bus, we took a bus there from Mexico City, and we got there, we left Mexico City around 11 p.m., got there about 3 p.m. the following day, um, and we went to like this car dealership place where they like asked us things and stuff like that. So we stayed there for the night, and they came back for us early in the morning, and basically all I really remember is just run, 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 get to the river, take off your clothes. They put us in like this floating thing, get us across the river, run, run, run some more. We're doing this in June. Um, so it was crazy hot. We got in a car, told us to stay down, went to a house and they made us wash our clothes. We ended up having to leave everything we had on us. Um, and then they took us in another car. Um, at that time, they separated my mom and myself. My mom originally never wanted to get separated from me just in case anything happened. Um, but they separated us once we were already in the States and passed the checkpoints I passed normally, like if I was somebody else, and my mom was hidden in a car until we made it to, to Austin. 
So Brenda is currently in limbo. My, my future is a little bit uncertain at the moment. Um, come August, in terms of my immigration status, I am a DACA student, so. Brenda illustrates the power of migration, as well as the drama and the risk. As a fifth grader, she forded the Rio Grande into Texas from Mexico because her parents wanted a better life for her. She found the Ann Richards School, named for a crusading female governor of Texas. They guided her into speaking English. They taught her math and coding. They sent her on to Texas's great public university and now to a job at Google. However, she's in the U.S. illegally. She had no documents to enter that night. She crossed the Rio Grande and she still doesn't. I think we know that Brenda is going to have a happy ending. She's already received the biggest benefits of migration. Mm -hmm. Her education, her training, her multilingualism, her job with a global company, and the money she and her family has been sending back to Mexico. Even if the anti-immigrant politics in the U.S. force her to leave the USA, Google has said she can have a job in Canada or Mexico. In fact, when I spoke to her, her biggest fear is whether her Spanish is good enough for I business. I know, that's a big problem for Hispanics. I can, t- I can testify myself. What I want to know is what about the Brenda of today? A fifth grade girl in Mexico today will be Brenda's age in 2030. She is one whose life will be one of a million life stories that will add up to whether the world achieves the global goals or falls short. Will she get to come to Texas and attend the Ann Richard School? Or will the backlash against migrants limit her options and the options of all those others trying to make it and to have better lives? So I spoke to Lord Mayor of Dublin about what's at stake. I'm deeply concerned over the policies of some national leaders are taking at the moment. And I think this very xenophobic, chauvinistic view of society is going to damage the world in general. So we got a variety of people that spoke to us about migration. We heard the personal story, the girl that crossed, the mayor of the cities, the father from the Vatican, Louis Arbor. My sense, and I do have sort of like a strong opinion on this, is Mm -hmm. that migration in general is positive. Mm -hmm. I think that the speed of migration will increase. And the third part is that it has to be regulated. I understand the fear of the other angle, the receiving countries, the countries, or the people from the receiving countries that are scared and that are based on perception more than data. But it is also fair to say, yeah, if you are used to having a community where you have your friends and your neighbors and your habits and so on, and all of a sudden you go to the supermarket and you can no longer find the bread that you buy on the Sundays because now you find tortillas, it is a shock. It is a cultural change. And you have to actually be realistic about how do you manage that so that it's integrated. And I do think that it is an issue of putting the rules of the game to make it regulated for everybody. So. And from my perspective, I'd say from being from California and seeing tech leader after tech leader say, we've got to have migration. You can't, if we don't open the doors to have people from from Europe, from India, actually we won't be able to create the solutions for the, the technology that will solve the world's problems. So that's sort of one part of what I see. And I actually see from when I've lived in London how much has changed and how much the the neighborhood has changed. So when my neighborhood, there never used to be a Polish grocery store now. There's loads Mm. of Polish grocery Mm. stores. I think you can greet it with fear or I think you can greet it with 
enjoying the multiculturalism. But well, what I'd love to hear from you is when you were in Puerto Vallarta at the beginning of the Global mm-hmm. Compact, what are the ways that people have started talking about how you build this framework where countries talk about how many folks come in and out and how does that sort of structure start to look? Do you mind if I actually just like say what the com- Global Compact for Migration is once again? I would like you to say what the Global Compact is on migration. <laughs> Could you please tell us what the Global Compact for Migration is? Thank you for asking. So the Global Compact for Migration, it will be the Sustainable Development Goals type of treaty for migration. It is trying to make the rules of the game to make migration regulated, orderly, and systematic with the approval of 193 countries. Ideally, it will be done and launched by September 2018 with a huge summit in December 19 in Morocco, where I hope to go and afterwards go and celebrate in Marrakesh. I'd say that's a plan. <laughs> it's a good plan. I know you like a plant. Too. I love plants. I mean, <laughs> I love plants. So given the global conflict for migration, I'm in. The, having this incredible number of countries, and not every country came, and there was one that pulled out the last minute, mm-hmm. not the only one, but the, the important one. And I thought it was going to be like a party pooper, just like, you know, destroy the party. But no, actually, the, the show went on, and it was the first conversation that I saw turning around an issue and turning Mm. the tone from a conversation that people felt I'm not going to be talking about. And there were more than 2,000 people in that conversation. A big part of this problem is that we don't understand the phenomenon enough. Even if it's historic, you don't know the points. You don't know when people leave and why Mm. they leave. How is their journey? What is their arrival? And when they return? We need to understand what is the state of a person when they decide to leave their home. Mm. Can you imagine what has to go through your mind when mm. you're leaving? What kind of like emotional and psychological push you need to have? And I don't know whether we're either quantifying it or understanding it enough. We're not understanding the risks of the journey when someone mm. is leaving to get to another destination. When people arrive to a place, I think that that's where the focus has been. Integrated, not integrated, good for society, not good for society, and so on. But also, it's hard when people try to go back home, you know? Mm. But even just in terms of folks who decide to move to be an economic migrant, I think you could possibly argue that I was an economic migrant. I wanted some adventure. I wanted to see what life was like somewhere else. I had a huge opportunity right, to right, go right. to in, in, when I decided to move to the UK. You do look like an adventurous. I, I seriously am an adventurous. <laughs> you do like like a non-stop migrant. <laughs> like a perpetuous forever migrant. But the one thing that I think that I also found fascinating about Puerto Vallarta, and I do think that migration is the topic for 2018 to understand better, not because it's my new job at the UN working on migration only, but it is because by trying to understand the phenomena, we came up with incredible numbers. I was surprised mm. about the remittances numbers that we discussed. Incredible. Like, it's just like crazy. I'm like having $450 billion sent from poor to poor from Developing country to developing country. Exactly. Three times more than foreign aid. Yeah. So the question is, if you stop migration, who's going to, do you have to increase foreign aid? Right. Or who is going to do the increasing foreign aid? Because there's... In this political climate, who's going to increase the foreign aid? Okay, so it's interesting that you said that 
a country didn't show up, the United States didn't show up. But what I thought was really interesting was that some of the U.S. states said they wanted to be part yeah, of totally. the global compact. And another really interesting phenomena about migration is that cities are taking the power because they can actually establish the rules of the game. And cities in general are the ones that are receiving migrants, that are producing with migrants, mm -hmm. that are, you know, like... And being open to exactly, migrants, too. Exactly. So th that's going to be a space to watch. So as always, we're going to leave you with some facts you can share and actions you can take. If you're talking about migration at lunch, here's three facts you can share. So add up all migrants in the world and they will be the fifth largest country. 255 million people, Brazil and Indonesia put together. Migrants send $450 billion home to developing countries each year. That's three times the amount those countries receive in international aid. And migrants add 4% more to the global economy each year than they would have if they would have stayed home. So, of course, all this talk without action is meaningless. So we want to leave you, our dear listener, with some actions you can take to be part of changing the world. If you want to do more, go to the action section of our website, globalgoalscast.org, where our partners from Action Button will help you get engaged. Edi, we made this episode in December of 2017. And the new year began with an incredible collision of relevant events. We're going to bring you up to date. The Secretary General released a report on migration and gave a very important speech about it. He said that migration is crucial, necessary, and overwhelmingly positive. He admitted their challenges. And also that national leaders should guide their countries with facts and not prejudice. Within hours, President Trump told a group of legislators that he wanted immigrants from Norway rather than Haiti or Africa. Lawmakers said he used a vile expletive to characterize the African countries. Then others claimed he didn't. But no one denied the basic point that he urged migration from a very wealthy, overwhelmingly white country rather than predominantly black countries. Ambassadors and heads of state from African countries denounced Trump's words. The head of human rights at the UN and many others said these were racist remarks. A key point for the Secretary General is addressing pressures that cause people that need to leave where they are from to somewhere better. This is what he calls prevention. The Netherlands announced it would contribute a billion euros to a fund to improve conditions in countries that are a source of migration. So the reaction to the Secretary General call for fact-based leadership has been fascinating. Uh, we must say this, of course, but as both Brexit and the Trump election demonstrate, that facts alone aren't how people vote. Faith, trust, anger, emotion all factor in and have to be addressed. That's what Father Cherney was talking about, Edie, when we had a conversation with him. And again, I think that 2018 is going to be a crucial year for migration, not only because of the incredible set of politics that we have out there right now, but also because we have the opportunity of the Global Compact for Migration to make sure that migration is understood, but it's also regulated and it's safe and it's orderly. And that you're not saying that just because it's your new job, right? Absolutely not. <laughs> 
Thank you for listening. Our next episode is live from the World Economic Forum in Davos, where we will have an exclusive first interview with father and son explorers Rob and Barney Swan after returning from their 600-mile trek from the South Pole using only renewable energy, walking for 60 days. And if you want to make sure you don't miss any of our episodes, subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Global Goalscast for the latest news and developments. That was Edie Losh, and I am Claudia Romo Edelman. Thank you for being with us. Until next time. Bye-bye. Thanks to all our UN and NGO partners. We are also grateful for the support of Hub Culture, Freud's Communication, SAS, Saatchi and & Saatchi, and CBS News Digital. Special thanks to Peter Gabriel for our amazing music during this episode. With everyone fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media posting, and even events management. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. Don't know much about marketing? No sweat. Constant Contact's writing assistant tools and automation features help you say the right thing at the right time every time. Plus, you can send with confidence knowing your emails are actually reaching your customers thanks to Constant Contact's best-in-class 97% deliverability rate. I'm a small business owner, and I believe that this is a great tool for other small business owners. In small businesses, you need to create a team. And if you're starting by yourself, Constant Contact can be the team that you need. Tackle any challenge with Constant Contact's expert live customer support. Plus, everything's backed by the 30-day money-back guarantee. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Hey there, everyone. I'm Sarah Weldon, CEO of Trufinco, a finance company dedicated to helping both budding and established small businesses. I'm thrilled to be hosting Business Perfect Formula, a podcast designed to demystify business funding, real estate investing, and business credit. My goal is to simplify the complexities of alternative lending, showing you that navigating the financial landscape can be straightforward and stress-free. Business Perfect Formula is available wherever you listen to podcasts. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.